Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. Thank you for your patience as this episode is delayed even on our reduced summer schedule because I got COVID and it really took me out. Um, My partner and I both got it. We are both okay, Um, but it was like two weeks of of COVID um, and of feeling quite sick and then just feeling extremely fatigued. So. Thank you for your patience. This episode is worth the wait, I promise. It's a good one on the Wheel of Consent with Britta Love, who was introduced to me by Laura May Northrup, who does a lot of amazing work around psychedelics and healing sexual trauma. You can scroll back a little bit for that episode, slash I'll link it in the description if you want to check out my conversation with Lara. But to tell you a little bit about Britta, Britta uses they-she pronouns. They weave between the worlds of conscious sexuality and psychedelic ritual with a through line of social justice and embodied consent. They became an advocate for sex workers' rights as an undergraduate at the London School of Economics in 2007 and have been a writer and activist pushing for the decriminalization of drugs and sex work ever since. Britta is a certified somatic sex educator through the Institute for the Study of Somatic Sex Education, has trained with Betty Martin's School of Consent, and is a certified circle keeper with the Planning Change Restorative Justice Certification Program under the tutelage of Kay Pranis. Britta is currently completing a research-based memoir about healing and awakening through altered states induced by sex and drugs based on her consciousness studies thesis at Goddard College and is in the process of organizing a sex strike slash strike for pleasure in response to the U.S. abortion bans. In this episode, we talk about Britta's journey with healing and sexuality, navigating consent in long-term relationships, the Betty Martin Wheel of Consent, which Britta refers to as some of the most psychedelic, life-changing work for them. Getting clear on what our desires are, what we want to take, what we want to allow, allowing versus enduring, understanding our patterns within the Wheel of Consent, and not assuming people have easy access to their choice and their voice receiving no's, cultivating consent in psychedelic spaces in particular, not transferring hierarchies of power, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's a really powerful one, and there's so much more to consent beyond yes means yes, no means no, and it was really cool to have this conversation with Britta where we really got to explore nuances and complexities around consent and this beautiful work around the wheel of consent, which I had never heard of, um, and if you've never heard of it either, you'll get a great intro in this episode. I do have one announcement that I want to share, and probably many of you know I've really been taking a step back from facilitating work. For quite a while because of personal <laughs> emotional things and then just finishing my poetry book um, and it feels really good to have moon sign out in the world and I'm starting to feel ready to 
offer a bit more breath work again so I'm just dipping my toes in no big plans but I am opening up some one-on-one sliding scale breathwork sessions virtual over zoom in September I think that I keep returning to breathwork as personal practice and as a facilitator because I've just found over and over again for myself and for folks that I'm working with that when we meet the breath, we get to meet more of ourselves. And when we meet more of ourselves, we learn in deeper and truer ways how to come more alive. And I think that's the work of my life is to experience aliveness and to help facilitate that for other folks too, which is not limited to breathwork, but that's one channel of helping through that. And this tool is really ours, it's yours, it's for us, Um, it's us and our breath. And I'm there to hold the space, to offer some words, to offer some music, to offer a container for you to hopefully feel safer to get what you need, to fall apart if that's what you need, to go as deep as you need to, to touch a big feeling or um, welcome a scary part of you in. I think this work can be particularly supportive in times of transition, of grief, of tower moments, uncertainty, change, all those kinds of things. So I'll put the link in the description. There are just a handful of sessions available, and like I mentioned, they're sliding scale. They're all over Zoom, and I would love to hold space for you to breathe if you're feeling called as we transition into these fall months, this more yin season of the year, um, to do a little bit of yin practice, a little bit of self-meeting practice, a little bit of breath practice. Okay. That's all I wanted to share, sending you all lots of love, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Britta. So I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey, and I'd love to hear about your journey with healing, with sexuality, with all of the things, and how it's brought you to this moment um, and the work that you do now. Wow, what a great big question. Um, (laughs) Thank you for for, um, having me on here and for asking me it. Um, My journey has really been, you know, I suppose over the last 15 years, a slow um, coming into the body, coming to understand trauma that I'd experienced, coming to um, just really unfold through a path that had like a lot of struggle, you know. when I was 19, I became a, a sex worker. I was in a college in London and um, I had had, I think, such uh, such difficult experiences navigating consent uh, at that age that it was actually a really powerful act for me to um, decide to engage in sex work because I was for the first time going to have some boundaries, limits and like control over how and when things happen to my body. And so this was kind of, I think I mark that moment as the beginning of my healing path. Um, but it was very early on as, as an escort, as a sex worker, that I came into a realization that what was happening between me and my clients was actually something that was really deep and powerful, that there was like a sharing of vulnerability, that there was 
um, deeper embodiment, that pleasure itself was like connecting and had its own intelligence and healing capacity. And so I kind of uh, opened, I think, to my healing path through sex work initially. And then um, I was also struggling with substances at the time and um, kind of stumbled my way into experimenting with like LSD and ketamine and similarly like had these experiences and were like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is actually quite like, I think I just learned something about my anxiety and how it's been shaping my entire world and limiting my ability to be present in the world. And um, wait, I think there might be this thing called like a spirit world that I mocked my entire life, you know? So I had all of this opening um, through sex work, through exploring with drugs. And um, that path has just continued to unfold where I feel like, um, you know, after a while, I was an escort for over a decade. Um, I wanted to learn more uh, sort of like, I felt like I had had a lot of embodied wisdom about how to hold space for people, but I wanted to learn in a more like conscious framework about how to do that, especially in a trauma informed way. And especially not just working with primarily cis, cis straight white dudes. Um, and so I what got trained as the somatic sex educator. And that was a really radical um, change for me in my own healing. Cause that training was really um, healing for me realizing um, how powerful it was to even be in a space that was so empowering of choice and voice around sexuality. Um, so that's like a ongoing unfolding in practice for me. And that's also how I got introduced to the wheel of consent, which is a, um, a practice that kind of breaks down interactions, not just physical touch interactions, but you can kind of look at, use it as a lens for everything in the world to uh, separate out doing from giving. So it kind of looks at, you know, maybe a common scenario is like, can I give you a massage? And it's like, well, who is that for? Is it because I want to give you something or is it because I want you to receive something and really unpacking desire and starting to look at all the ways that we hide from our desire. We hide from our need to take, we are disconnected from our, uh, our physical senses when we're touching or interacting with other people. So that became a huge unfolding for me as well. Um, and it really, uh, so now I'm kind of at this place where I'm sort of uh, weaving between embodied consent, um, psychedelic healing, you know, kind of had a deep dive into some of the social justice questions around psychedelics as well. And some of the, harm that's happening in psychedelic spaces as it is everywhere, but it needs to be addressed in the psychedelic community as well. Um, and so I kind of had a deep dive into some restorative justice approaches and transformative just justice approaches to that. And that's kind of been my journey. And it's kind of always woven between being in service and community or to clients and uh, my own healing. Those two things have been completely intertwined always. Um, so it's very much a journey I'm still on finding my connection to my own inner authority and desire and empowering my own choice and voice. And, you know, um, I always kind of think of those who can't do teach. I do think there's something about, you know, um, this is, I'm endlessly fascinated because it's endlessly unfolding for me internally. So it's like kind of, yeah, those things are very connected. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like there are so many threads that I want to pick up on in what you just shared. And I really appreciate you sharing about your journey. Um, and also if you've been hearing my cat chirping around, um, I don't know if it's <laughs> the mic, but it will continue to happen. <laughs> she might even make an appearance, who knows? Um, <laughs> but I think what you were sharing about consent was really resonating with me around um in in a different way and as I don't do sex work and haven't done sex work but I have had the experience in my relationship with my current partner where in dating this person and having sex with this person I realized for the first time how I had never truly had actual consent ever (laughs) Um, even when I thought like experiences were happening consensually, I realized like through dating my partner now that I actually had no idea what consent was and was just like continually having experiences where boundaries were not clear and like consent was not respected. And I didn't even really, I mean, sometimes I really realized, but a lot of times I didn't even really know. And I think it's been so healing for a lot of reasons, but like the consent piece feels really deeply healing and being able to like really trust that I'm going to be touched in a way that I want to be touched. I'm going to like have an experience that I desire to have that we're both going to communicate so clearly about what feels good and doesn't and what we desire and what we need and never had that before. Absolutely. It's so profound. Like that, that how that lands in in your body when you're, when you kind of are coming into more of that. And then, I mean, it could be quite emotional. I mean, I remember the first time, I was on my somatic sex education training and there were actually not very many cis men on the training. And of course I was paired with one of them for our first exercise that would involve genital touch. And I was very like, Oh really? Like, you know, and, um, but I had to kind of trust the container. I named that that was something that was coming up for me. And I, um, you know, we did some, some like more general body work and it was a bossy massage. And that's one of the things we do in somatic sex education, where it's like every step is like, how would you like to be touched? And there's no like intuitively free flowing through what I think your body is asking you to do. It's like not that kind of experience. It's really about being attuned. Okay. More or less pressure. Like every step is just guided by your internal, like, step-by-step realization of what your body is really craving on its deepest level. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, I think I I want to invite some genital touch, but I just want you to put one hand over my cunt and one hand over my heart and, um, and just stay there. And I said, I think I'm going to need you to stay there for some time because I think I'm going to cry. And I just had this like huge release, just the simplicity of trusting and knowing that, that touch was only going to happen at my request with explicit communication that, you know, that just sort of allowing access to my body that intimately wasn't going to suddenly create this free for all space where it's very difficult to say no. And there's pressures and other desires are flying at me before I have a chance to check in about whether I want to go with them. And I go into my freeze fawn response and endure it, you know, it's such a, you know, it's so common in our culture to be, um, patterned socially to endure unwanted touch. And like, I didn't really understand until I did that training, how deep that was in me. Um, and, uh, and it's very, um, 
it sort of just changes everything when you have someone like you were saying with your partner where you can you can really un you know undo those patterns and i think a lot of people sometimes get turned off when or at least i've had experiences with people who get turned off with like um oh so much explicit communication oh it just ruins the flow and the magic and you know all of that and I think that I think people have a lot of fear around that, but actually, to me, it creates so much freedom to have the building blocks of that kind of communication. And then when you build enough relational experience over time, you're not using every step of the way check-ins because you have enough shared like language and experience, but you've built this foundation that allows so much more safety and so so much more ability to feel in your body which means so much more capacity for pleasure and um yeah and it feels like very radical work it feels like to me that uh reclaiming access to like true embodied pleasure is a radical act that's what it feels like to me yes fuck yes and (laughs) do that through through consent I think I mean, I'm definitely wet for explicit communication. I think it's the best. <laughs> Same. I think that's where I've gotten to in my life where it's just like top of my list in any relationship of any kind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I think that's making me want to, maybe we can dig more into this consent conversation and something that I had never done before this relationship or even heard of was making a consent castle. And so I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with that practice, but, um, Oh, it's super cool. I'll just, I'll explain briefly. Um, my partner is also a queer sex educator and consent educator. So this would be why they know all this stuff. Um, but it's basically the idea that like in a long-term relationship, like you're building this, like you were talking about like relational familiarity um, and just like shared memory of this experience between you. And like, I don't, for me, like, I don't want my partner anymore to ask if they can kiss me every time they want to kiss me. Like that feels good. I want them to just be able to kiss me. But the consent castle is about having like explicit communication about what things are in like the comfy room of the castle and like things (laughs) in the uncomfy room, which are things that like, I still want you to ask. So like something for me is like, I still want you to ask anytime before you touch my vagina without clothes on regardless um and then things like for me kissing or like touching my boobs or whatever like that all goes in like the comfy room and I'm like I don't need you to ask about that but then we get to like continually check in and revisit the castle and be like are these things still in the comfy room what things do we want to move around like what still feels good and I think it's really lovely because there is that question like how do you navigate consent when you're in a relationship um that is like spanning a long time and maybe you're not asking anymore for like every single thing but how do you still have like explicit consent so that's the castle absolutely I love that that's a beautiful framing for that because it is so important um I think that in a weird way like uh in sort of like one-off experiences or like in a professional like client sex worker or like somatic sex educator um you know student relationship those consent can almost be easier because it doesn't have all the fluidity of like a day-to-day partner and the familiarity and then you kind of like you want the ease and the comfort of that but you do you still want to feel like you have 
boundaries and are allowed to have shifting needs around, you know, how your body does or doesn't want to be interacted with on any given day. So it's a beautiful practice. Yeah, it's such a beautiful practice. I'm not very familiar with the Betty Martin Wheel of Consent, and I'm hoping that maybe you want to dig into that Wheel of Consent a bit and your work with that and share about that. Definitely. Um, It's been some of the most psychedelic, life-changing, sober work for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, I guess it sometimes it can get, um, I, I will explain the framework and I'll put the caveat in front of it that the best way to learn this model is to have a body experience of it. So there's kind of like an intellectual framework I can explain. And if anyone listening to this is like, what the hell did this person just explain? Like, don't even worry about it. Play the three minute game, which I'll explain in a minute. (laughs) So basically, um, well, actually I'll use the three minute game to explain the model. I think that can be helpful. So um, the three minute game is an exercise that Betty Martin used to use with her clients as sort of like a, a, a practice and out of playing it, she developed this model of the wheel of consent. And it basically is each person in a, in a dyad taking turns, asking the other person, how do you want to be touched? And how would you like me to touch you? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. How would you like, how would you like to be touched? And how would you like to touch me? Sorry. <laughs> so, um, what that does is it creates these four different experiences. So when I say, how would you like to be touched? You're going to experience accepting touch that you've asked for. It's for you, but you're not going to have to actively do anything. It's, it's like you're, you're receiving it, which is, I mean, active is a weird word. I think we actively receive, but you don't have to be doing the doing, right? Um, and for me, having asked you, how would you like to be touched? I'm serving. I might be touching you, but it is for you. So, you know, I say, how do you want to be touched, Erin? And Erin says, I would like a neck massage. And I check in with myself and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm willing to give you a neck massage because that check in is important. And then uh, I give that neck massage. I might enjoy giving it. It might give me a lot of pleasure to see you relax into, you know, enjoying the massage. But that's secondary pleasure. It's for you. And that's the the clarity. The other axis is I would say, how do you want to touch me? And so, you know, so then, so we've just done serving and accepting. This question puts us in taking and allowing. So by saying, how do you want to touch me? You're going to take your pleasure by actively doing it. You're not just like receiving touch for you. You're doing for you, which this is a quadrant that our culture doesn't have a very comfortable relationship with, I would say overall out of the four. Even the word taking does not sound like something you want to acknowledge that you're doing. I feel so <laughs> in my body. I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> it tends to be, I mean, everyone has a different, you know, range of struggle with each of the quadrants have their own challenges, but taking brings up a lot for people. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, or maybe not so funny because it kind of causes a lot of harm in our society is that we each have a need to be spend time in each of these four quadrants. There are all times where we need to receive pleasure, take pleasure, you know, give pleasure, accept pleasure. Like these are very important things that these are just 
needs that happen. But when you have a culture that's resistant to the idea of taking pleasure because desire is a scary thing, because pleasure is shamed, because asking for what you want might lead to rejection, because of all the reasons, um, what happens is we talk about the shadows of the wheel. So instead of taking with consent in the wheel of consent, having asked and, you know, let's say I was going to say, Erin, I would really like to stroke your hair. And you could say, well, okay, you can stroke my hair, but uh, no pulling on it, for example. And then we'd be like, okay, great. And so we've got a consent agreement and I can enjoy the fact that I really want to take the pleasure of stroking your hair. If I don't have that access to ask for that need, that need is still there. So how am I going to get that need met? And that's where the shadow comes in. And we tend to do things like be a little manipulative <laughs> or, you know, like, or say, oh, do you want your hair brushed? <laughs> or, you know, uh, <laughs> make it like it's about your desire. Um, or we might do something worse, right? We might just like sneak in and when you're taking a nap and stroke your hair because like we really want to and we can't acknowledge that we want to. And so we start slipping into like assault and rape and violence that happens in our culture. So having a healthy relationship to our desire and to taking is like the linchpin to me of all of it. And then, of course, as the person who's being taken from, you're in an allowing space. And allowing should always be uh, with consent. Like, I am willing. This might not be my full desire, but I am totally happy or totally fine with you taking this kind of touch. And that's okay, too. I know there's a lot of, like, sex-positive talk about always enthusiastic consent. Like, sometimes we just want our partner to have something that's going to give them pleasure. And this is not violating my sense of what I want and I'm allowing it. That's very different from enduring, like, which is the kind of the shadow of allow is right. When someone just wants something from us, we immediately just endure whatever it is because we don't feel like we have choice and voice in that. So those are the four quadrants that serve, accept and take allow. And basically you don't even, there's a kind of an image you can look up from Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent, and it's got all these arrows and words, and you can kind of really see it mapped out. If you're a visual person, it could be fun. For me, it made me dizzy, and I didn't understand it at all until I spent <laughs> five days doing these touch exercises with other beings, and that's where the profound learning happens. So this is kind of interesting to you, just like finding a partner to play the three-minute game with. There's like instructions online you can Google, and um, or you can go to a workshop. There's lots of like one-day workshops, two-day workshops, or longer, and you just practice being in each of these four quadrants and seeing what you learn is where I'm comfortable. You know, some of us have very deep entitlement patterns. So maybe we're more comfortable taking and we're, when we're in service, we don't really know how to be in service because we slip into taking what we want when we're actually supposed to be giving the person what they asked for. That's also a thing. And there's no shame. It's just about coming to know what our patterns are. Other people, our pattern is submission, like we were kind of just talking about. So it's a really powerful embodied way to come to know how we tend to react relate to people and it goes in my noticing is it goes far beyond sex it kind of goes into just the everyday ways that we interact with the world and so I think it's quite kind of world-changing stuff because if we all had more awareness about our patterns of entitlement and submission I think we could make a better world Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm so fascinated by this. I think when I think about what you're saying about the taking piece, because that definitely feels like the trickiest area in my brain for me, is 
I feel like there's an element there of needing to trust that people will tell you the truth, like the person who is in the allowing space, like trusting that they will tell you yes, no, that they won't slip into enduring, that that they can be in touch enough with their desire and knowing and able feel safe enough to communicate that honestly. And I think that's something that comes up a lot for me in that kind of taking space is I don't trust that people can tell me no. So I just don't ask for things like Mm -hmm. in life and also in the sexual context. Um, Yeah, that's a really big one. And that can, you know, I think that's why these spaces of like doing practice exercises or workshops can be so powerful because, you know, you're actually right. Like a hundred percent, you know, there is, you know, one of the, this isn't directly related to taking because that's not what I'm doing as a somatic sex educator, but it's in general, like one of the sort of ground, like basics of somatic sex education is we do not assume that anyone has easy access to their choice or their voice. Like Mm -hmm. that is not the default in our culture. So it's, you know, it's a wise assumption to make. And I think that these kind of practice spaces of like building these exercises, you know, you can do them just with your hand and forearm with a friend, right? Like you don't have to, like, they don't have to be sexual exercises at all. In fact, I recommend that you start with something like that because then trusting that, that the takings not is going to be okay. And that the person allowing isn't going to slip into enduring. It's a little lower stakes and, you know, and, and that, person very well may slip into enduring, but it becomes a really powerful opportunity for them to have a micro experience, kind of like a safe enough experience of how that uh, is a pattern for them and to notice it. And that can be a really powerful noticing for unfolding a lot of different ways that might be playing out in one's life. Uh, You know, I can, I can speak from the eye here. It was a very (laughs) powerful experience (laughs) of learning how that was a pattern for me. And so, you know, and then there's the shame of like, oh, I was supposed to say that I wasn't willing or wanting to do that, but I didn't, but actually that's all part of the, the learning. And so having learning spaces where we can map our patterns and start to become more aware of them are so, so crucial so that we can build the relational connections where we can start to trust that taking and allowing can, can happen consensually. And I think it is something that, um, you know, should be kind of worked up to and and with, and with someone you don't know at all, it's, it is fair enough. I mean, you don't want to, um, sort of make someone else's boundaries, your responsibility. So like you know, so there's, you know, ways in the world where I think it is important to be able to ask for what you want, make it very clear that it's okay to say no in as much an embodied way as you can. And if that person still isn't able to say no, that's not your fault. But it is a good awareness to have that um, that it's not always easy for people. To, and um, I think a lot about, especially when one's in a position of power, like a teacher or you're doing public speaking or, you know, anyone who's kind of doing things in community, like how do you become a person who's easy to say no to? Because that's a thing too, right? When there's power operating, it becomes harder to say no. So um, you've got this great podcast and then you asked me to do something. Maybe I feel a little bit. <laughs> no, it's not. That's, that wasn't coming up for me. But <laughs> You know, or vice versa, you know, there's like power is all, you know, intersectional, different planes and things too. So um, these are all really big ongoing questions and queries for me in my life. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are for for me too. The space specifically around like what do I actually want and how do I um, how do I receive no? How do I give no? Because um, I think all my people pleasing tendencies have taught me my whole life to be like you don't say no. <laughs> Exactly. It also has made it difficult to like receive no. Where like I'm like, yes, tell me no, but I have a whole like feelings experience or have like shame for like asking for something that received a no, or like there's a whole piece there. Yeah. Um, That's um one of the things we often do in real consent workshops is we ask, like, you know, why don't we ask for what we want? And that's a huge reason. Like a lot of times we're like kind of measuring out what we think we can get, and that's how we decide what we'll ask for. You know, because we don't want to risk the rejection or the awkwardness um, or the disappointments or I mean, that that can touch on so many very young parts, too. Right. That didn't get what they wanted or get their needs met when they were young. And that can be that internal emotional experience, no matter how evolved and conscious you are in wanting to to have consensual adult relationships, it doesn't change, like you said, and for me as well, like that internal experience of maybe spinning out or feeling overwhelmed by the by the no, even though you want to be, <laughs> those things can coexist. You can kind of, so my practice is often making sure that I give the affirmative, like, good like I'm glad thank you for your no thank you for telling me and then I go and I have my process about it which is you know it's hard um but it also feels like growth and um and I feel like over time that muscle has been exercised to a point where I come back to my I want to be a safe person to say no to I'm glad I have the relationships with people who are willing to say no to me that means it's a real relationship it means that we're actually like in a boundary respecting like live interchanging like relationship that's that's what I want yeah you know it's hard sometimes you <laughs> know <laughs> I do need to cry about it sometimes that's all <laughs> <what> I want <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I think I now in my life have a lot of people around me who are really comfortable saying no and receiving no and that feels so helpful for me to like break those patterns and like permission giving also and so I'm grateful for that yeah it's so important it really helps and it also helps helped me a lot to have people say no to me mm-hmm. like you know and and that I I can remember one friend in particular saying a no that hurt so much and then realizing that that was her boundary to set. Like that was not. And I was thinking about why it upset me so much. And I was like, oh, it's because I don't I wouldn't have given myself permission to do that. (laughs) Someone else like I wouldn't have given myself permission to have that. No. And in a funny way, receiving her no had this domino effect on my life where this was like years ago where I, I can actually date from there at times when I've been able, able to more easily say no to other people, just mm-hmm. being able to reference that embodied experience of it's okay to have a healthy relationship where you receive those kinds of no's, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I do think that it's a very um, like embodied thing that like being around people who have done a little bit more work on it, it like really, right? It comes into your body as well, like just through interacting with them. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful, like, especially when for me, I did not grow up around any people with a similar gender to me who were able to say no ever. And then mm-hmm. like people who give and give and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're like the most 
terrible thing you can do is ever make someone uncomfortable. Um, so you're never supposed to have a boundary or say no. And all that stuff. So like being around people who have um, broken through that or didn't even get that programming or are in different places than me with that. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. And people, I feel like it's not talked about enough how toxic that is. Like, you know, it can seem so like I look back and I grew up around a lot of that as well. And it can seem so like, oh, but it's so nice. There's never any conflict. Like, you know, everyone's always so amenable. But then you look at what's happening unconsciously. People are holding all these resentments and they're so exhausted and the relationships are actually so fragile and you can't really have much depth because you can't actually fully express your needs and desires with the other person. It creates like such a a limitation on our relations and that's really sad yeah you turn the conflict in on yourself I heard someone say this one time that resonated with me so much it's like when you refuse to let the conflict be external then you just turn it in and it becomes conflict within you and (laughs) did that for so long and it's terrible and I'm very committed to not doing that anymore (laughs) same oh wow same Yeah, I'm wondering what the role of psychedelics has been in all of this for you. And if there's anything you want to share about healing with psychedelics or like consent in psychedelics. Mm. Yeah, for me, um, it's interesting because the consent work and the sexual healing work and the psychedelic work has all kind of been like, they've all been integration practices for each other somehow. Um, But I do feel like the psychedelic work really allowed me to um, develop self-trust that was really uh, kind of crucial for me to be able to do the other work that I did in therapy and did, did in my sexual healing work um, and the consent work. Cause you know, there's a, there's a journey for consent. You have to kind of first notice what you want and then you have to sort of trust that it is what you want and you have to value enough that it's like worth pursuing and then you have to communicate it right so there's like a whole journey of there's like four steps at which we can lose track of lose that journey to actually expressing our need or desire and for me I often couldn't notice because I was very dissociated um and when I did I definitely didn't trust so I would kind of like uh often impose like other people's judgments or value systems over mine and then I would get very confused about what I actually wanted or what I should actually do and for me psychedelics especially I've worked a lot with iboga which is a more complicated medicine to work with ethically because of sustainability issues and um, as well as the cultural um, origins of the plant but um, I've I've worked with most most of the more common psychedelics at this point and They've all helped me to connect more deeply to myself and to kind of peel back layers of, um, to kind of like melt dissociation and then peel back the layers of like um, not being able to sort of access and trust what my internal, um, my internal guidance. And so I feel like my psychedelic work has just been like a deepening and deepening and deepening of connection to self. And then I kind of used all the embodiment work to kind of integrate that. Um, 
So what does it mean to trust myself interacting with another body? What does it mean to, you know, trust myself exploring pleasure? Um, and what can that teach me? And then that becomes, you know, we talk about integration a lot with psychedelic work because it's one thing to have the experience. And then what do you, where does it go? How does it become woven through your life? And um, I think integration really needs to be embodied. So these embodiment practices are like really kind of have been, you know, kind of started out by accident just because I was doing sex work and um, exploring sexuality and um, those things would kind of just show up more deeply because of the psychedelic work I did. And I also feel like there's a lot of parallels, right? Like psychedelics and um, sex are both like kind of more taboo, more stigmatized, kind of salacious when we do talk about them, like we laugh at them, make jokes because we're not entirely comfortable, <laughs> but they're also like really uh, historically some of the most common ways that people alt uh, accessed altered states, um, you know, conscious sexual practice, psychedelic plants and fungi around the world. Um, and they were practices of surrender of like finding ways to bypass the ego and, and open to other parts of ourselves, other parts of the cosmos. Um, and I think it's really telling that in our kind of American culture, uh, or maybe you could say like Western culture or colonial, colonial culture, um, there's been this huge fear around those practices. And I think it says a lot because the control and power over like operating system of our culture really has a fear of letting go and, and learning about our interconnectedness that these experiences teach us, which would undermine our ability to behave so harmfully <laughs> as sort of like a kind of power over dominating colonial culture that we've been. Um, and so there's, uh, I think there's just like immense resistance and fear. And I think it's a very interesting moment now that psychedelics are going very mainstream. Um, I am both, you know, I have to say I'm a little more concerned than exciting or excited about it right now. I had many years of being so excited about it and I'm watching some of what's happening with the medicalization and the um, just complete lack of um, awareness around power and how it's operating and the systems that are being replicated and how people get access to medicines or don't, but how it's given by whom, within what structure, with what assumptions made, with who excluded from studies. There's just a lot of questions and with what respect to the people who held the knowledge of how to use these plants and fungi for millennia and um, the sort of hypocrisy of them not, you know, having access to things that we're not going to have and we're not, we'll now have access if you have great insurance in America. You know, there's kind of a, there's a lot happening around, around that. And I think it's, an, but I think it's an interesting moment because I try to remind myself that it's, we're going from such a sort of toxic overculture mm -hmm. and we're trying to introduce these medicines that have like such deep teachings and they're inevitably going to be introduced through the systems that we have in place, which are deeply harmful for the most part. And so there's going to be this real messiness, which doesn't leave me 
like, I don't want to be complacent about it. It's not just like, well, this is all part of the process and it's going to be fine. I think we need to be conscious about every step of the way. How could this be better? How can we change the system to better reflect the medicine and, and then, you know, equity and, and in- integrate the lessons that we get from psychedelics into the very structures we're implementing them in. And people have to be held accountable for that over and over. And we have to question the capitalist impulse taking over the industry. Like we need to do those things. Um, but I also am trying to lean into trust that we can do that and that it was there was never any other way that but through the toxic culture we're in and that we just need to um, keep pushing and not just sort of get to the place where, well, now everyone's going to be tripping and the world's going to be better because I don't believe that anymore. I, I can see how you can actually utilize psychedelics to uphold systems of oppression just as much as to question them or break things down. And I never really believed that until I saw like the QAnon shaman storm the Capitol and talk about drinking ayahuasca (laughs) or, you know, um, learning about some of the far right, you know, groups that use LSD. And it's, it's uh, kind of feels like a ruining of some kind of deep innocence, but (laughs) to think that, Oh, these, these things that I consider, that are teachers that have taught me about interconnection and our and the beauty of like the universe and and how and liberation for all beings are somehow can also be tools for other people to do the exact opposite. It's very, it's you know, it's a little frightening, <laughs> but but I so I do think I kind of come back to the idea of set and setting around psychedelics too. Um, you know, what set and setting do we need to create? in the spaces where we're doing psychedelics for liberation, for consent, for, uh, you know, increased equity and access. Like how do we, for unpacking our entitlement patterns, even around feeling entitled to use this plant or, you know, like there's ways that the containers themselves can be encouraging that kind of reflection without any prescriptive answers, but just, not leaving those things unsaid or unquestioned or unthought about, which is in itself a political act. Like it's not like I'm asking to politicize psychedelic space. It's already political. If we're not asking those questions about who's in the room, why, you know, how is this happening? Like, what are the structures like in this space? You know, how is the facilitator operating with consent or without? Like there's a lot of very frightening consent dynamics in psychedelic spaces for me. Um, so it's all interconnected, right? It's gone full circle to consent, but that's how that's how I see those things fitting together. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that so much. I feel like psychedelics are something I'm so interested in and I've only had one psychedelic experience and it was amazing. And it was also like, it was just me and a former partner. It wasn't like a whole like container space or anything. Um, but that's something I feel curious about. And yeah, I think it, it just feels helpful to hear you talk about those things. And also so sad, (laughs) like the far right, like, I know yeah that really sucks (laughs) and the capitalists you know the the peter teals investing in patenting this molecule like or the production of the molecule that makes psilocybin mushrooms magical you know um it's very frightening to be like oh there's (laughs) there's this path and you know i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the path of cannabis legalization that could be implemented in how we approach psychedelics but it's like the moment is now you know this is it's happening now and um 
Yeah. We'll see how it's going to unfold over the next decade. I kind of have almost more faith in in the underground sometimes at this point in terms of spaces. And I don't say that with a broad brush, but there are some spaces in the underground that are more committed to equity and have a lot of peer supervision happening and have a lot of, um, you know, their, their own qualifications and trainings that aren't participating in the like capitalist pieces and the exclusionary pieces and <laughs> all the other things too. So there's going to be a lot of different people coming into the work from lots of different angles. And I just think it's so important to my biggest lesson was I spent a lot of years in my early uh, 20s when I was exploring a lot, um, just assuming that, oh, well, this person is a 10th generation medicine man, so whatever he's saying is right. Or this person is a psychedelic therapist, so whatever they're saying is right. And the and this continues to unfold for me, but it started really by noticing that there was harm happening in those spaces and that um, I had to really uh, never stop questioning authority, <laughs> even when I was in a space that seemed alternative or like this was a healing space and really noticing the power dynamics and the consent dynamics. And now I am, there's actually very few spaces I feel comfortable sitting in, in a group setting. I mean, I do a lot of work alone or with a partner, but, or with a couple of friends, but like as a group, I have a pretty high standard for what I need to feel safe in a container. Cause I've had so many traumatic shitty experiences at this point. Um, and it's very, it was, it's been an interesting journey for me because a lot of the time I always thought, Oh, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not into mainstream things. I'm not susceptible to the like mainstream authorities. I question things, but actually what I realized quite recently is my tendency is to just transfer that uh, hierarchy of authorities over to my alternative community <laughs> and be like, oh, this person, like Adrienne Marie Brown is like the expert or, you know, like whoever it is <laughs> becomes the <a> new <laughs> hierarchy. And it's, that's really dangerous, right? You build a revolution on that and you're going to recreate the same system because it's not, it's the power that corrupts and it's the lack of consent that and leaves power unchecked that corrupts. And it's not, that some people are inherently good or bad and that, you know, if we replace them, it'll be okay. I need to be able to question Adrian Marie Brown when I need to. I also love her work. I'm joking, but like, you know, also question. Yes. And um, I think that's, that's something that's like um, a consent piece that has to be deeply cultivated in psychedelic space because in psychedelic space, there's an even increased vulnerability you're working with altered states, just like with sex, sex is an altered state. That's what they also have in common, right? Erotic trance orgasm. That's an altered state. That's why like we don't uh, in somatic sex education, we don't up negotiate to doing different kinds of touch once we're already starting to touch. Cause you're already altered. It would be like getting someone high and being like, Oh, now you're open to an anal massage. Sure. It'd be like, no, I'm glad you felt open to that. Let's discuss that next time when you're back in kind of your everyday level of awareness and see if that's something you still want to explore next time. And similar with drugs, because when you're, when you're high, when you're altered, or, I mean, I don't really love those words when you're in a non-normative state, maybe let's say, um, or an expanded state, um, you know, to integrate the desires and, and acts that can come up can feel really difficult when you're back in your everyday consciousness. And um, so there's just a lot of extra pieces of awareness to have around consent when you're going to be putting yourself under the care of someone in one of those states. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate so much what you're saying about like transferring that like 
hierarchy of power just to like over to a different area. And I absolutely did that. And I think sort of a cracking point for me was when I like realized that someone who I had put all of that on, um, all of that authority, whatever that person says is right. Um, really just before the pandemic, um, when that sort of like glass shattered and I was like, holy shit. And I realized that that's exactly what I did. Um, and I think something that I am grateful for is strange, but I think that growing up um, in like evangelical Christianity and growing up with like really dogmatic, non-consensual religion um, has made me really, really um, allergic to <laughs> to putting authority on pedestal or being in spaces where you're not allowed to question. Um, so I feel grateful for that learning anyways. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> one of those things where we're like well that was shitty trauma to go through but now I've got these spidey senses that I'm grateful yeah. for <laughs> no I'm like absolutely not <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> Prada, it's been so nice to talk with you um I feel Bye. like I have a lot more I want to talk to you about but we're we're coming to the end of our time um and I want to respect that so I want to ask you the last question that I always ask on this show, which is just what does living open mean to you and what comes up when you hear that? Mm. Um, I feel like living open is like a constant like learning. Like what is it? What is that to, to open to self, to um, figure out what self is, to open to other ways of of knowing and being and um and I also it's funny because I also have this part of me that shows up when I hear living open and I'm like oh but also like boundaries like living open but with like loving boundaries (laughs) because sometimes those spaces of just living open some spaces I've been in can be very um you know the openness is used as a bypass of consent. So what is like living open with mutual respect for all beings and creatures around me and their desires and needs to live open as well. That's what Mm. comes up for me. I love that. (laughs) Can you tell people where they can find you and connect with you and also about the strike for pleasure? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you can find me on social media at Britta Loved. That's B-R-I-T-T-A-L-O-V-E-D. So it's just like my name in past tense. <laughs> um, or you can go to BrittaLoved.com. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm just putting together a call um, that really comes from my somatic sex education work as well as my like sex work lineage. And um, it's a response to these horrific um, times we're living in for bodily autonomy and abortion rights. And um, basically it's, I, I kind of am envisioning a mycelial network of responses that take this meme of a strike for pleasure. And the idea is, um, you know, there's, there was that idea a few years ago, I think it was like Alyssa Milano or someone who sort of said, let's have a sex strike. And there's so much power in that idea, but it was also so, um, you know, 
problematic because it was sort of assuming that sex was for men and depriving men of sex. And it was so heteronormative and there were so many assumptions built in. But I was thinking about Lysistrata and the history of, of sex strikes and how do we could use that idea to resource ourselves in a time when these laws are so powerfully um, meant consciously or unconsciously <clears throat> to have us restrict access to our sense of pleasure and embodiment and our autonomy. And that constricting that I feel in my body every time I read a new headline about what's happening in this country, it feels like something I wanted to counteract like consciously in an embodied way and collectively and with kind of a fuck you in it as well. So the idea of the strike for pleasure is there's an invitation to refrain from penis and vagina sex, but that is not required. If it's in your pleasure to keep having that kind of sex, please do. It's sort of like an act of solidarity that we can do together. Um, and the bigger invitation is to just really tune into pleasure and what are the different ways we can pleasure ourselves in deeper and different and more expanded ways than we've ever given ourselves permission to before. And do we do that through our self-pleasure practice, through expanding with other partners, through exploring more queer sex, through kinkier sex, through learning with somatic sex educators, through exploring with sex workers from communal masturbation to uh, communal erotic care and having a friend where we exchange boundary erotic touch with just to resource ourselves with pleasure and explore that. There's, I have big dreams of all the different ways that we can show up for more pleasure that will really piss off the right in this country. Uh-huh. And... <laughs> And allow me access to my embodiment and my pleasure without doing anything that in this moment is going to leave me uh, at risk of uh, becoming a felon or forced into parenthood. So um, I just want to decenter the the PIV sex and uh, call in more power and pleasure in the face of uh, restrictions on embodiment. So um, there's a website, strikeforpleasure.com, and uh, it's a really simple call. And the idea is just for everyone to take it and make it what they will. Do you make your own offering, make your own personal practice, do your own thing with your friends or your partners or your community, um, share about it online, and let's just resource ourselves for these really dark times. And um, I think pleasure is power and that it's a magical act to reclaim it and to share it and it can resource us to do the important work of, you know, funding the abortion funds, marching in the streets, fighting in the courts, like, you know, all the other radical acts that have to happen in response. I kind of see this as a little internal engine that we can charge or battery we can charge up to resource ourselves to do that work. So that's the strike for pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.